So back in 2017, the left-leaning website Quartz had published this article. The data are in. Young people are increasingly less racist than old people. They go on to quote some statistics of various polls that were used to determine that racism was on a serious decline from the 1960s. In the 1960s, almost half of white respondents in the U.S. suggested that they would move if a black family moved in next door, but the proportion of Americans reporting to the World Values Survey that they were uncomfortable living next to someone of a different race fell from 8% in the 1980s to 6% today. Again, in 1958, only 4% of Americans approved of interracial marriage, according to the Gallup polling. Support only crossed the 50% threshold in 1997. It has now reached 87%. Although people can lie to surveyors about their beliefs, the polling matches up with the behavioral change. In 1980, less than 7% of marriages were between spouses of different races or ethnicity in the United States. That climbed to 15% by 2010. There were 6,336 racially or ethnically motivated hate crimes reported by the FBI in 1994. That dropped to 3,310 in 2015. However, moving ahead to 2021, hate crimes reached the highest level in more than a decade. There were 7,759 reported hate crimes in the U.S. last year, the most in 12 years the FBI reported this week. But some experts and advocacy groups say the true number is probably even higher. The number of recorded bias incidents reported by the FBI was the highest since 2008, when 7,783 hate crimes were reported to the agency, federal data shows. The spike in 2020 follows a recent upward trend in bias incidents, and it was a 6% increase over 2019. So, what caused the sudden surge of racism? Now, some people, of course, like to suggest that somehow Trump getting elected on its own is what did that. But I've never really understood that theory, nor have I been able to get anybody to give me any actual statistics to correlate how Trump's election somehow led to an increase in racism. So, after doing some reading of scientific papers on the topic and speaking to competent racial activists like Daryl Davis, I have a different explanation. Let's have a look at what happens to the human mind when someone's specific group identity is attacked. Even if you think you are trying to attack them to bring them around to your way of thinking, it actually has the opposite effect. This is not a matter of opinion. This is scientifically proven. If you engage in hatred, you will beget hatred. Now, a lot of the studies that were conducted about this phenomenon, ironically, were conducted by left-leaning scientists who usually were trying to find explanations for how racism took root in the right. But everything that they discovered would equally apply to people on the left. Authoritarianism is not unique to the right or to the left, and it can be a response to people feeling insecure. Let's read this excerpt from the article. Among the most important guides in this inquiry is the political scientist Karen Stenner. In 2005, Stenner published a book called The Authoritarian Dynamic, an academic work of full of graphs, descriptions of regression analysis, and discussions of scholarly disputes over the nature of authoritarianism. It therefore had not had a wide readership. 
Her core finding is that authoritarianism is not a stable personality trait. It is rather a psychological predisposition to become intolerant when the person receives a certain kind of threat. It's as though some people have a button on their foreheads. And when the button is pushed, they suddenly become intensely focused on defending their in-group, picking out foreigners and nonconformists, and stamping out dissent within the group. At those times, they are more attracted to strongmen and the use of force. At other times, when they perceive no such threat, they are not unusually intolerant. So the key is to understand what pushes that button. Now, looking at this, I'm sure many leftists immediately are saying, well, yes, the right is inclined to fascism. And meanwhile, people on the right, who believe that communism and authoritarianism are not in any way um, separate, will say, well, yes, the left is inclined towards communism. What both sides don't recognize is that tribalism itself can cause an authoritarian reaction in a, a society because people, you know, feeling insecure will turn to authoritarians to protect them. This quote in particular stuck out to me because I've experienced this phenomenon. It's as though some people have a button on their foreheads and when the button is pushed, they suddenly become intensely focused on defending their in-group. It occurred to me one day that I had an epiphany. That epiphany was that all of the closest to racist thoughts I have ever had generally came from interacting with racial activists. Not even getting beat up by black kids who hated white kids in the ghetto ever made me consider any kind of racist thinking. But interacting with Racial activists would occasionally cause me to have twinges of those thoughts. The same would be said for every bordering on sexist thought I've ever had, coming from interacting with feminists, every bordering on transphobic thought I've ever had, coming with inter you know, from interacting with trans activists. So if they're the activists, and they're supposed to be convincing us that we shouldn't hate certain groups, why do they have that effect on people? I remember discussing with a local Black Lives Matter activist my conversation with Daryl Davis, and specifically how Daryl would essentially rescue white people who had been converted into the cult of racism by humanizing himself to them and just demonstrating that racism is absurd by showing that he, as a black man, was human and even relatable. And the reply that I got from the Black Lives Matter activist was that I don't want to convince people. I want them to be afraid. Anybody who's ever studied the psychology involving racism knows that racism literally is caused by fear. An interesting note, when Daryl Davis went to Baltimore to interact with Black Lives Matter, the conversation went extremely poorly, and they threatened him never to return. In this article written by Bart... Bonakowski, an associate professor of sociology at Harvard, Ethno-Nationalist Populism and the Mobilization of Collective Resentment. Scholarly and journalistic accounts of the recent successes of radical right politics in Europe and the United States, including the Brexit referendum and the Trump campaign, tend to conflate three phenomena, populism, ethno-nationalism, and authoritarianism. While all three are important elements of the radical right, they are neither coterminous nor limited to the right. In other words, yes, in fact, people on the left can get caught up in this kind of crap just as well.
The resulting lack of analytical clarity has entered accounts of, cause, of the causes and consequences of ethno-nationalist populism. So when they talk about ethno-nationalist populism and how that can also come about, this is the black nationalist movements that, for example, critical race theory documents suggest were right, that somehow Malcolm X was right and Martin Luther King was wrong. Political and media discourse has channeled such threats into resentments towards elites, immigrants, and ethnic, racial, and religious minorities, thereby activating previously latent attitudes and lending legitimacy to radical political campaigns that promise to return power and status to the aggrieved supporters. This can happen to black people, white people, Hispanic people, anybody. If you can convince people that they're the aggrieved and promise to bring power back to you, to the people who are aggrieved, you can gain a lot of power. This is how a lot of dangerous people, whether it's Mao, Stalin, uh, Hitler, have come to power over the years, is essentially through othering, you know, creating a situation where you tell them, you guys are all victims, and the people that are the problem are this other group of people, and if you just follow me, we'll deal with them. Not only does this form of politics threaten democratic institutions and intergroup relations, but it also has the potential to alter the contours of mainstream public discourse, thereby creating the conditions of possibility for future success of populist, nationalist, and authoritarian politics. Now notice, he didn't just say white nationalists. This kind of thinking can literally infect the minds of anybody. And it's brought about by creating a circumstance of fear. You make people afraid that their group is a threat. And then it's really easy at that point because it activates primitive parts of our minds that are related to tri- you know, tribalism to rise up and defend one's tribe. In this study called Experiments in Intergroup Discrimination, they asked the question, can discrimination be traced to some such origin as social conflict or a history of hostility? Not necessarily. Apparently, the mere fact of division into groups is enough to trigger discriminatory behavior. They conducted a series of experiments where they created groups and, you know, basically just artificially created groups within you know, the people that they were doing the experiment with and noticed this behavior. This same effect has been recreated in a more famous classroom study that we'll be going over here shortly. But it's important to remember that just the act of dividing people into groups will cause discriminatory behavior. And as I demonstrated earlier, that can lead to other effects like bigotry, xenophobia, etc. And this is not just limited to race. If you spend a whole bunch of time dividing people up by their gender, by their sexual identity, by their sexual preference, whatever, and just making that the core of all human interaction, then you're literally creating the circumstances for social phenomenon like racism, bigotry, sexism, etc. to take hold. You're creating it by making people hyper-aware of an idea that supposedly we're all different instead of all being the same. Tribalism happens when you believe that you're part of one tribe and then somebody else is part of a different tribe. Let's take a look at that experiment I mentioned earlier. So this social experiment was conducted in the 1960s by a woman named Jane Elliott. 
she's since went on to kind of be really anti-white and woke in that regard. But the experiment was meant to teach children about how judging people solely by the basis of superficial characteristics is wrong. And it's not just that it's immoral. It doesn't make any sense. You can't hold an individual accountable for things done by people who just look like them because our behavior and traits are not determined by how we look. That's why racism is the belief that race is a determinant of human traits. Note I didn't say anything about anybody needing to have any power over anyone because they believe that. Because that's bullshit. But let's get into this video. Special week. Does anybody know what it is? National Brotherhood Week. What's brotherhood? Treat everyone as though he was your brother. And is there anyone in this United States that we do not treat as our brothers? Yes. Who? The black people. Who else? Absolutely the Indians. Many places in the United States. How are black people treated? How are Indians treated? How are people who are of a different color than we are treated? They don't get anything in this world. Why is that? Because they're different color. You think you know how I would feel yeah. to be judged by the color of your skin? I don't. Do you think you do? No, I don't think you'd know how that felt unless you had been through it, would you? It might be interesting to judge people today by the color of their eyes. Would you like to try this? Yeah! Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Since I'm the teacher and I have blue eyes, I think maybe the blue-eyed people should be on top the first day. I now, notice what she's doing here. She's literally dividing them up into groups, which, as the study that I just cited showed, doing this in of itself will create discriminatory behavior. Let's continue. I mean, the blue-eyed people are the better people in this room. Oh, yes, they are. Blue-eyed people are smarter than brown-eyed people. This is a fact. The brown-eyed people do not get to use the drinking fountain. You'll have to use the paper cups. You brown-eyed people are not to play with the blue-eyed people on the playground. Well, the brown-eyed people in this room today are going to wear collars so that we can tell from a distance what color your eyes are. Ready, Laurie? Brown-eyed. She's a brown-eyed. You'll begin to notice today that we spend a great deal of time waiting for brown-eyed people. I don't see the yardstick to you. Hey, Mrs. Lake, you better keep that on your desk with the brown-eyed people get out of hand. Oh, you think if the brown-eyed people get out of hand, that would be the thing to use. Who goes first to lunch? Blue the blue-eyed people. Blue-eyed people may go back for seconds. Brown-eyed people do not. Brown-eyed. Don't you know? They're not smart. Now notice again, she created these groups and specifically encourage dialogue that one of these groups was better or you know whatever than the other let's continue and it seemed like when we were down on the bottom everything bad was happening to us the way they treated you you felt like you didn't even want to try to do anything it seemed like mrs elliott was taking our best friends away from us what happened at recess were two of you boys fighting russell call me names and i came in the gut what did he call you brown eyes they always call us that. Yeah, they always call us that. They call us brown eyes. What's wrong with being called brown eyes? It means that we're stupider. I watched what had been marvelous 
cooperative, wonderful, thoughtful children turn into nasty, vicious, discriminating little third graders in a space of 15 minutes. Yesterday, I told you that brown-eyed people aren't as good as blue-eyed people. That wasn't true. I lied to you yesterday. The truth is that brown-eyed people are better than blue-eyed people. Russell, where are your glasses? I forgot them. You forgot them, and what color are your eyes? Blue. <laughs> Susan Ginder has brown eyes. She didn't forget her glasses. Yeah. Russell Ring has blue eyes, and what about his glasses? He forgot them. He forgot them. Yesterday we were visiting, and Greg said, Boy, I like to hit my little sister as hard as I can. That's fun. What does that tell you about blue-eyed people? So again, she's now assigning group identity based on these superficial, you know, beliefs. In this case, the, you know, the color of eyes. And this is important because this sort of thing is going on right now towards a certain demographic. And we'll get into that in a moment. The brown-eyed people may take off their collars and each of you may put your collar on a blue-eyed person. The brown-eyed people get five extra minutes of recess. You blue-eyed people are not allowed to be on the playground equipment. You blue-eyed people are not to play with the brown-eyed people. Brown-eyed people are better than blue-eyed people. They're smarter than blue-eyed people. And if you don't believe it, look at Brian. I use Orton Gillingham Phonics. We use the card pack. The brown-eyed children were in the low class the first day, and it took them five and a half minutes to get through the card pack. The second day, it took them two and a half minutes. The only thing that had changed was the fact that now they were superior people. You went faster than I ever had anyone go through the card pack. Why couldn't you get them yesterday? We were there. We had the collars on. We you think the collars kept you? We just keep thinking about those collars. Oh, and you couldn't think as well with the collars on. Well, Four minutes and 18 seconds. How long did it take you yesterday? Three minutes. Three minutes. How long did it take you today? Four minutes and 18 seconds. What happened? Window. What were you thinking of? This. I hate today. You do. I hate too. <laughs> because I'm blue-eyed. See, I am too. <laughs> it's nothing. It's not funny. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. This is a filthy nasty word called discrimination we're treating people a certain way because they are different from the rest of us is that now this kind of comes back to again what they said if you're assigning differences to people then you're going to create this situation fair no, no. nothing fair about it we didn't say this was going to be a fair day did we no, no. and it isn't it's a horrid day okay, you ready what did you people who are wearing blue collars now find out today? I know what they felt like it yesterday. I did too. How did they feel yesterday? Like a dog on a leash. Yeah. Like you're chained up in the prison. Like you're shut up and you're throwing the key away. Should the color of some other person's eyes have anything to do with no. how you treat them? No. All right, then should the color of their skin? No. Should you judge people no. by the color no. of their skin? No. no. 
When you see a black man or an Indian or someone walking down the street, are you going to say, <laughs> look at that silly looking thing? No. Does it make any difference whether their skin is black or white? No. Or yellow? No. Or red? No. Is that how you decide whether people are good or bad? No. Is that what makes people good or bad? No. So this is where it divorces from the current activism, which is you'll notice she'll say or said, does the fact that someone's white mean anything? And they all said no. But that's not how things are done anymore. We don't tell people that it's okay to be white. And specifically, if somebody were to do something like, say, post flyers around a college campus that say it's okay to be white, it would be labeled as hate speech. I wish I was making that up. That actually happened. So hate crimes have been on the rise, as we discussed earlier. I discovered an interesting little tidbit. Who's in second place? That would be the victims of anti-white hate crime. So despite being supposedly a white supremacist society, white people come in a solid second place beneath black people when it comes to being victims of hate crime. More white people are targeted for hate crimes than Hispanics and Asians and other groups. Interesting. Now let's look at the way that activism regards race now. And again, this could apply to any group. You could be talking about straight versus gay, trans versus cis, male versus female, anything. But we're using race for now. First of all, you tell one of the groups that they can't be racist. That no matter what they do, no matter what they say, they somehow cannot be racist. Then you tell the other group that they're inherently psychopathic, that they must be stopped, the very future of mankind depends on it, that they are bad for the environment, that they don't know how to cook and their food is bland, that they are inherently liars and have a lying problem, and that your children can't be friends with their children. And also, that people of that group should be excluded. That basically you should be allowed to segregate yourself from them. What kind of reactions do you think you would get out of that people? The people that you have decided are this other group. What if you tell them that they lack empathy? This is where we run into a problem. Because if you do this, as we've already demonstrated, you're going to get a negative reaction from the people in question. Those people, in turn, are going to have discriminatory thoughts against you. They're going to be defensive against you. They're going to be afraid of you. And they will be othered. You will be telling them that they're not part of the tribe. So they, in turn, will respond in a negative tribalist fashion to you. This is effectively what modern activism about race and a lot of other issues is doing. It is dividing us into groups and making it clear that your group identity is the determining factor, like the value that you have as a person and what your role in society is. And it could get kind of funny 
because sometimes they start turning on each other, then you end up with stuff like this. LGBT student activist group says that gay men are not oppressed enough to deserve representation. Or this. The trouble with white women. Or perhaps, are Asians the next in line to be white? Then we have, straight black men are the white people of black people. Because, you know, at this point, you guys, I guess, can say that they have the eye color, you know, the bad eye color, anytime you want. And then they start turning on each other. The effects of this are, once again, just further division of society. Nothing good comes from this. So if people have a button in their minds that essentially triggers racist or tribalist thought, then why is our activism seemingly geared towards pushing that button? That's exactly what's going on with all of the anti-white, anti-straight, anti-male sentiment. The only thing that's coming out the other side of that is more racism, sexism, etc. Somebody wants us divided. Who's they, is usually what you would be asked. Some of you might remember a video I did earlier. The first time I saw woke ideology weaponized for the purposes of dividing and conquering the people was at Occupy. We started off as an extremely diverse and unified group of people of different races, you know, colors, creeds, etc. We were completely unified and everybody had an equal voice. As things progressed, that changed. There was a moment in particular when all of a sudden everything shifted away from discussing the struggle between the poor versus the wealthy, and instead to discussing the struggle between white people and black people, straight people and gay people, etc. And I watched as Occupy disintegrated. It also was one of the things that prevented Occupy from working with the Tea Party which was something that was about to happen. I remember Ron Paul distinctly calling for exactly that. Hey, Tea Party, you know, let's work with Occupy because we have common enemies. The enemies in question were the big bankers at the time. So who is they? Well, they are the same people who are not friends to uh, middle-class, hardworking Republicans, and they're also not friends to the poor left. They are the real force behind what goes on in this earth. The real power. The men behind the curtain, so to speak. Somebody wants us divided to ensure that we're not a threat to them. The social justice movement and our activism is literally geared towards creating more division, more hatred, more distrust. And the goal of that is to prevent us from working together to overcome them. So, what does this mean for you? If you're engaged in this kind of activism, and you believe that you're ending racism, or fighting it, or doing anything to prevent racism from continuing to grow, you need to take a look at yourself and what you've been doing, and realize that you've actually been accomplishing the opposite. We went from racism being on a decline, to racism growing. But it's not just the race issue, as I mentioned earlier, um, as an excellent trans activist who recently came forward and did a video detailing the trans uh, activist you know, state of affairs, pointed out that a lot of the things that trans activists are doing will lead to more transphobia. 
The same thing is true of the extreme feminists who seem to be doing a fantastic job of fostering and essentially creating an environment rich for sexism to take hold. Um, and just across the board, this strategy of inquisitions and witch hunts and gotta get you is literally not accomplishing anything. You might get people to be quiet when you're around, but that doesn't mean you've convinced them of anything. That means that they've decided they don't want to talk to you anymore. And at that point, you've failed. Activism is not supposed to be about making people afraid. Activism is supposed to be about convincing people that you're right, that your issue has merit, and that people should follow it, that people should endorse it, people should work with you. If your goal is just to go out there and, you know, sow hate and dissension, are, are you really working at that point towards ending bigotry and racism or whatever? Obviously not. You may not think that your goal is to go out and sow dissension, but as I've already demonstrated, social science has shown for a long time that if you go and attack somebody's group, you are inevitably going to make them defensive, they're going to stop listening to you, and the men behind the curtain, that's exactly what they want. They want us to be unable to listen and communicate with each other, because as long as we're focused on each other, we're not paying any attention to them and whatever their agenda is for us. This is not about white supremacy or black supremacy in the end. It's about the supremacy of the super, fantastically wealthy over the rest of us. Thanks for listening, folks. That's what I've got for you today. Please like, subscribe, share, ring the bell, etc. Check out my website, v-radio.us, where you can find my other social media and mediums where this content is uploaded, and always be sure that you're actually getting notified when new work comes out. As you can probably imagine, people who do this kind of content are not favored by the algorithm, because the algorithm is favorable to divisive nonsense. So, help me with the signal. If you'd like to support me financially, I would appreciate it. You can do so on Patreon or PayPal. Thanks for listening.